This is a becoming creature. I am your host, Nick, and I am joined by the wandering, witty, wonderful, wild, and often woo, liminal warmth. Lim is quite prolific. She has produced a ton of books under the name Alden Marshall. She is also a game builder, a podcaster, and a business owner. You can learn more on her Patreon called The Liminal Index. Lim, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm blushing. That was quite an intro. Um, it's, it's, it's funny when someone else lists it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have a wonderful intro on your podcast called Chaotic Thinking, which is extremely polished. Uh, it comes off to me as both really professional and entirely effortless. What inspired you to start it? What have you learned about podcasting through the process? And why should we listen? Hmm. Uh, yeah. So podcasting in particular, uh, I think I just wanted an excuse to have an opportunity to talk to people more directly about woo. You know, there's only so much you can do through primary research and, and reading books. And I think I was just curious what other people thought about it. Like, you know, if, if you listen to my podcast, you hear a lot of me basically pinning people down and going like, okay, like you are woo adjacent is magic real? What are your direct experiences with it? And I found, right. that, um, I think some of the, the best examples of persuasive stories about magic that I've, that I've heard come out of those encounters personally, because I think it's a lot more credible to me when I have someone like telling me a story from their life and being like, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. This is what happened to me. This was my experience. I find that much more plausible and credible than I do like reading an account of something in a book where, you know, you, you can't read someone's tone. You can't get a sense for how honest they're being. You, you can't get a vibe off them. And so um, I think that was one of the big reasons why I did it. Um, what I've learned as a result of it, I think there's two elements to that. I think I am on kind of the woo side. I'm more persuaded after those conversations that there is a there there as hmm. um daniel ingram would say like i'm not making any metaphysical claims about magic but i will say that the more i talk to people about their experiences with all of these types of emergent phenomena that we can't quite explain through you know just everyday knowledge um the more i'm persuaded that there is something there to investigate and discover on right. the actual, like, um, you know, technical side, like on the podcasting side in general, mm. um, I think I've really learned the value of researching someone prior to going into a podcast and asking good questions. I know that, um, at least for, for me, uh, I find it very frustrating when someone invites me to come chat with them and then doesn't really have anything that they... Um, that they know about my background or they ask me questions that I've answered a bunch of times already. That's always right. kind of, kind of frustrating. So, you know, in, in this case, like I appreciate that you clearly did some homework and I saw that and that was very cool. And so, but I, I just see how important that is now too, as a podcaster myself. For me, one of the 
best things about podcasting is there's this excitement from the intensity and the focus. There's some kind of expectation that it that it matters and that there are higher stakes. In regular conversation, topics are kind of uh, more relaxed and not very intense and people aren't doing a lot of work. And it's very important to have those conversations in your life. But I think people do hunger for um, topics that are more powerful and, and more hard hitting where people care more. Mm-hmm. I think this is a little bit why people care more about podcasts in general and, and why people are listening to podcasts so often. It's is that the conversations have more more work that people are putting into them and they're exploring these ideas. Um, so now with your show and the, the ideas you explore, um, mm-hmm. can you give me an introduction? Like what, what's your audience and uh, who should listen to this show? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, I think anyone with an interest in, um, in woo in general, especially if they tend toward the skeptical, Mm-hmm. would probably have an interest in listening to my show because I really, really try very hard to like come at it from a materialist, rationalist perspective, like examine things pretty thoroughly, come in prepared with good questions. You know, I'm I'm not over here just kind of like taking it all on faith, right? Like I'm really trying to dig in and understand uh, not just the the claims that people make about it, but how those claims might work if they work and what evidence we have about them working. So I think it's kind of a, a unique perspective that you don't see in a lot of people who approach this topic. And I think it's an important one. Before Twitter, the word I would have most used to describe magic is like fiction. And yeah, yeah. since I've joined Twitter, <laughs> I was able to connect it to the ideas of like the power of prayer and um, mm-hmm. kind of open-mindedness paired with suggestibility and, um, you know, whatever power might be associated with placebos and, and visualization. And I really appreciate the way that pursue your curiosity on your show that there's always kind of like a, a flowing conversation. Mm-hmm. And and I really love that. It just it feels so natural to me. But uh, I'm curious, like, what exactly does magic mean to you within the context of, like, there's all of this phenomena. Do you have, um, like, some, some kind of uh, definition, working definition for people that don't know anything about magic? That's the question I get asked probably more than any other um, about mm-hmm. this topic. Um, the The real answer is I don't have a definition that's going to satisfy um, anyone mm-hmm. in what they're actually asking. Uh, and, right. and what I want to know too, right? Which is, is this real? And if it's real, what does it mean? Um, I think the problem with magic in general, to your point, is that um, people come at it from so many different angles and have so many different preconceptions about how to think about it that you can't even really talk about this space without kind of laying some initial groundwork to anchor both participants in the conversation on like a common set of terms. So I think that's like one of the biggest hurdles. But if I were to try to like put some boxes around it, when I talk about magic, I'm generally talking about things which um, appear to 
manipulate reality, either internal reality, like your your perception or external reality outside of the normal chains of cause and effect that that we think of as cause and effect that we would perceive as cause and effect which doesn't mean that they violate the laws of cause and effect necessarily it just means that from our perspective like it, it doesn't look like the thing you've done should cause the thing that happens and most people would argue that it didn't cause the thing that happens and that's a very loose unsatisfying definition for magic and an extremely technical one and i'm not even sure that it would encompass the entirety of um of things that i would bucket into this into these categories like like i'm not sure it would describe them all adequately um sorry i wish i had a more satisfying answer for you. <laughs> that's that's part of the primer that i'm working on building eventually well i think the answer is necessarily nebulous. Like there's no simple one sentence definition. Um, although I think it's fun to struggle with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if there, if there was, we would have it, right? Like, <laughs> right. like so many people try to answer this question and it's so frustrating to answer. Like there just isn't an easy way to describe it. And I think it's, it's important. Like uh, it's a question that's often on my mind as I read about this stuff kind of working with magic is often interfacing with this question. I'm going to move on. You've said that the thing with magic is that due to smart people deriding it, it's kind of poorly understood. And we can also, like, I also think of nutrition this way. Like people know nutrition is valuable, but it's, it's kind of poorly understood. I spoke to Ashcroft and he was talking about the the mental benefits of keto that go way beyond, you know, weight loss and, I just think that like nutrition is something that everybody sees the value of, but doesn't understand very well. And magic is kind of the same way, but it's not quite as respected popularly. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that characterization for sure. Carl Sagan wrote the book Demon Haunted World, uh, which you wrote a bit about. And um, I believe that you mostly agreed with what he was saying, but there was some confusion over what science is. And there's, there's this popular concept that the world is not um, that the world of science is like only what you can prove of it. And I think that confusion that the world is not merely what you can prove is like really important for understanding magic. So what do you imagine a better understanding of magic would even look like? Like, do you have any, um, like, possible hypotheses for answering any of these strange phenomena that you think are important? Yeah, I mean, uh, it would kind of depend on what the nature of magic and the, and the purpose and the effects of it ultimately would shake out to be in reality. But it could very much look like a more seriously, um, a more seriously pursued religious practice. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people approach their, their faith-based systems with, I don't know, like a little bit of laziness and, you know, they like kind of uh, what's the word, like a sort of hypocritical belief a little bit. Like they don't, you know, they, they believe, but like, I think there's a lot of doubt and like, they don't always take it with the level of seriousness that I think a lot of magical practitioners do. Mm -hmm. And so I think a well integrated magical system would, if, if it could actually produce results that would be valuable, would look a lot like um, a very intense, serious faith-based practice, potentially. But that's just one possibility, you know? Like, when you look at something like chaos magic, if it turned out that that 
is able to actually have an effect on reality and there is some evidence mm. that it might um then that w like that doesn't necessarily require any particular level of ritual or um you know daily prayer or anything so i think it, it just depends i was reading your post on the dangers of magic and it, it reminded me of a conversation i was having with uh David Chapman and Charlie Aubrey about the dangers of seeking enlightenment. And mm -hmm. I was just wondering, like, so what, what I'm kind of pursuing right now with enlightenment is that you can disassociate in a certain kind of way where you end up stuck because you essentially destroy your motivation to pursue enlightenment as you're getting rid of your desire. And, um, I was wondering if you thought that, um, that there was any overlap here between the dangers of magic and the dangers of pursuing enlightenment. And if, if there was any useful way to think of like Buddhism and enlightenment within the context of magic. Uh, I think they're a thousand percent uh, the, the same thing, basically. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of my essay on the dangers of occult practice came directly from notes that I took while reading Daniel Ingram's mastering the core teachings of the Buddha. Mm -hmm where he goes through like eight stages of jhana and like, you know, that whole framework. And um, I've actually in the past, um, I've got a, I've got a pet theory and I've seen other people advance this too, but there appear to be some pretty substantial links between um, the way your, your brain operates between like deep meditation, uh, entheogens, hallucinogenic drugs and magical trance states. And these states appear to be very similar in terms of um, how we interact with the world in ways while, while we're in them. So I think that many of the same cautions that uh, you would apply to the sort of enlightenment training that you're talking about, you would also want to apply while investigating magic because it puts you in a kind of similar reflective spaces and, it, um, and you're kind of working with the same internal material core to who you are. I look at stuff like um, magic and even hypnosis and for this stuff to work, it seems like there needs to be some kind of um, openness and a belief and a willingness. But what I wonder is kind of like, assuming all of this works, assuming all of it is real, why does a person need to believe in it or have a willingness to engage with it? Because when I think of um, the truth, I don't typically think of it as something that you need to uh, to believe in for it to kind of interact in in a real way. Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of maybe the most interesting questions related to magic. And one of the ones that draws the most eye rolls from skeptics, right? right? I mean, I've, I've mentioned this before that I feel like when I'm uh, reading tarot, when I'm drawing tarot cards, it works less well in terms of its predictive ability for people who don't buy into it right. like and 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 not even about the cold read like the cards come up better and you know skeptics have a very very hard time accepting this at at um face value you know like it sounds crazy because things don't work that way in our experience but there's actually a ton of writing on this topic and um the like weird unpredictability of magic in face of disbelief and this is one of the areas that I'm really interested in digging into and poking at more 
There's some interesting parapsychology theories on this stuff that can be read at the site called jexite.org, written by this guy, J.E. Kennedy, who was a parapsychology researcher for decades. And um, I can't remember exactly what his nine points are off the top of my head. Uh, I can give you the link later and people can go look at it if they want. But I've talked about this on Twitter once in a while, too. And he's got some really interesting theories about why it might work this way. And something Daniel Ingram and I talked about, too, was that Let's assume that magic was a force that, um, you know, it, it can affect the real world and that humans are naturally afraid of it and aversive to it. Well, it seems like one of the best defense mechanisms you could have against it would be uh, not believing in it shields you from it. And mm-hmm. so you don't have you don't have to think about it if you don't believe in it. And you're mostly protected from the effects of it, which also dovetails with a very commonly mentioned um, aspect of magic, which is that dabbling with this stuff opens you up to more supernatural risks than if you didn't dabble with this stuff. I mean, you see this, um, like Christianity talks about this. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see this in a lot of classic magical texts. And that kind of um, seems like it supports a similar hypothesis that by opening yourself up to these things, by opening yourself to believing in these things, you expose yourself to more risk from these things as well. And so, again, I'm not making any strong normative claims about this stuff. I I don't know. Like, I don't know if it's real, let alone if it's, um, you know, belief or non-belief has an impact on the degree to which it can affect you. But... Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think that there is also some evidence that if you play with these frameworks and entertain these ideas, it sure seems an awful lot like not believing in it interferes with your ability to experience magical results. What this makes me think of, um, and I've kind of been meditating on this a little bit, is that the range of our personal experience in the society we live in is extremely small. Like our our Mm -hmm. psychological bandwidth is really small. And then as I'm reading about um, enlightenment and people's experience with enlightenment and a lot of practices, but also kind of like um, the magic of, of just positive thinking and visualization and all of this stuff, it seems like it's just kind of um, and mysticism, but it's, it's kind of like reaching out into uh, kind of the boundaries of our little tiny psychological niche but I was thinking of like, what if we just lived in a completely different society where everybody just actively pursued enlightenment? Like what that society would even look like, where people would kind of check you. I just feel like it would be kind of trippy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I think about that a lot too. I think it's strange how normal we believe our life experiences mm-hmm. are. Yeah. And like, it's just so different, like depending on what age you're born in and like what, you know, what society you're raised in. Like there are places all over the world where everyone fully believes in magic and witches are killed for their their practice, you know? And like, it's just common knowledge. Magic is real. Magic works. Magic is dangerous. And like, we didn't grow up in that society. You're, you're totally right. Super weird. Like uh, we're just exposed to such a small sliver of reality. And we're just kind of living in these little reality tunnels as Robert Anton Wilson would say. And it's always fun when you step out of them and kind of, see the big picture or like see aspects of the big picture that you weren't exposed to before. Yeah. When I was younger, I um, met somebody from Haiti. And when I didn't believe in voodoo, they thought I was like completely insane. They thought I was like an idiot. (laughs) I was like, yeah, Yeah. I 
I don't really believe it. And they're like, no, it's 100%. Everybody knows it's true. And I was like, really? Voodoo? Or like, or, or like literal Christianity, right. like, you know, all through medieval Europe. Like, we, you don't really have that level of belief today in it. But back then, everyone did. Yeah, and it just makes me wonder, kind of like in the same way that our vision is within these tight bands, it makes me wonder what kind of other energy there really is out there that if you open yourself up to it, like... Um, I think light is a really good example because the, the visual range is so small, but the possible range mm-hmm. is like near infinite. So I think it's, it's kind of like that. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is my whole argument when people uh, come at me on Twitter and they're like, magic is so dumb. Magic isn't real. And I'm like, okay, like, sure. <laughs> but like, you know, uh, how, how much hubris do you want to stack on your shoulders here? to take such like a strong positive stance on that because like what do you really know about reality at all like aren't you curious like i'm not making any claims and you're making a really strong claim here right and it gets back to that concept that um that science is essentially everything that's proven that Uh firstly nothing is proven for sure and secondly um, like we can look at the coronavirus, right? And people were saying, you know, you shouldn't wear a mask because we haven't proven that it works, which mm-hmm. is the, the wrong way to come at science. This this concept that like we're only operating at the level of things we know to be true is completely ignorant of the potential of the human mind. And, and history, like right. how many how many things did we believe were not true that later turned out to be true or that we believed to be true that later turned out to be false? Like you, right. you can't just assume that the extent of common knowledge is the correct set of variables describing the world. Yeah, absolutely. I want to transition into a question from Kowtong, which was what kind of Aragor should we create since all the current ones are corrupt and destroying everyone's epistemology, <laughs> which I thought was a great question. It, it, it is a great question. Um, the answer is, I don't know, because uh, I think if I knew what Egregor we could create that would fix all our problems, um, you know, I think I would be probably dedicating my life to pushing that as hard as possible. But, mm. um, you know, I, I think I had replied to that comment on there, too, kind of talking about how um, when Marianne Williamson was was running for president, I thought that her language choices were really interesting. You know, she was presented as kind of like the spacey, out there, woo candidate, and we all laughed at her and thought she was funny. Um, but one thing that I thought was really interesting about her language was that I felt like it was very visionary in a way that I didn't hear from other uh, participants. Yes, it was woo. Yes, it was a little bit silly at times, but like she was talking about um, these big ideas about love and coming together right. and how that was going to be an antidote to the hate presented by, you know, Trump. And like, regardless of, of your political views, you know, I, I think it's really interesting for her to like kind of put this like grand narrative idea out there that's like really, really high minded, really, really high level. It just, she didn't do it in a way where it had juice or hook people. Like the idea wasn't uh, mimetically transmissible enough and it wasn't Mm -hmm. the right egregore, but I think it was interesting in her approach to it compared to the other candidates approaches. And so when you ask what egregore do we need to fix all our problems, uh, I don't know, but it's something that is going to be 
uh, mimetically powerful enough that it, you know, flashes through everyone and gets us excited about, I think, aligning more than we are today. I see um, the rifts and the zero-sum games that everyone perceives as one of our biggest mm-hmm. problems. So probably something that brings people together more. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I was joking about this on Twitter today, but I think it's really interesting how this whole Game Stonks um, debacle <laughs> has kind of united the left and the right in fury toward um, like the common man getting ripped off by, uh, you know, this this oligarch of, of bankers. And you kind of see this narrative play out on both sides of the aisle right now. And it's interesting because I think this is the issue. This is the issue I've seen the left and the right most aligned on over the last like three years, probably. (laughs) And it's fascinating. I think we're, we're headed off a cliff, maybe not quite to the degree that we felt like we were four months ago, but Mm -hmm. things certainly aren't improving. There's still massive rifts in society and the egregore that's going to save us is one that's going to bring us together uh, or at least allow us to live comfortably you know, in proximity to one another without wanting to kill and legislate each other to death. I think what I would call an egregore that the kind of like the in-group currently um, uses, and I found it really um, freeing when I, when I kind of realized what was going on, is that usually on the internet, you kind of have to have uh, an armor or a thick skin or something like that. But in our group, it's just kind of enforced that you're not rude to people. You don't demean people or deride people for what they think. And there's this welcoming energy that permeates the entire thing. And then if somebody comes in um, and says something rude or calls somebody, you know, a clown or, or something like that, everybody just goes, yeah, that's not all right. That's not cool. We don't do that. And I think that actually just totally changes all of the interactions in a, re- in a really big way. And I think it's something that a lot of people aren't even aware of as far as that's concerned, but it makes this corner of, of Twitter, like a totally different environment compared to a lot of the internet. I totally agree with you. And I love that about our corner of Twitter. I think that as an egregore that can extend beyond though, I I'm just skeptical yeah. that it works because it works in our little circle because we have very strong enforcement to your point of it by the big accounts. Right. Like, you know, if someone comes in and starts being a, a dick to one of our friends, like someone like, you know, Sonia or Egan or Visa will step in and just be like, Hey, that's not cool. Like, and you know, that's intimidating when you're looking at maybe <laughs> getting ratioed by someone with 10,000 followers. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of enforcement that we, And also, like, I feel like we all think similarly enough that we understand why these things are important and that people Mm -hmm. who are new and coming into our space kind of internalize those norms and help us enforce them. You don't have that when you're stepping into a new environment. Like, I'm thinking, uh, not to bring it back to the the Game Stonks thing, but I'm thinking about how annoyed (laughs) I was to see the the manager of the, the, the Citadel company, like, just taunting people on on Twitter about you know their their stock losses after they had locked down trading and i'm like just like no class and like you can't imagine someone doing that in our corner of twitter but i also don't see how you would stop someone from doing that in the same way outside of our space like in our playground it's easy to enforce outside it's much harder the kind of larger group that we're all a part of is really like 
the self-help group, you know, in a lot of ways, people that are trying to improve themselves. And they do this by reading and by educating themselves and by um, practice, right? Like practicing Zazen or something or, or the Alexander technique. And so I feel like we're, we're kind of special in that we all kind of know each other and we, we have certain norms, but I feel like those kind of norms are actually shared by this larger group of people that are trying to be more positive, that, that are kind of in many different ways, working on their ego and mm-hmm. working on their body and, and their life, um, which is obviously, I mean, that's one of the best selling book genres if it's, if it's not number one. So I feel like that is actually a, quite a large group. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with that. I think if you're the type of person to to your point seek out those um those kinds of things, you're probably also going to be a little bit less inclined to come in with a toxic attitude and start hurling insults <laughs> in the first place. So, you know, like I I think that yeah. we don't have quite as much of that because we don't attract that to our space. Well, yeah. it's like Lisa says all the time too, you know, you you get what you talk about. And I think we spend a lot yeah. of time being very careful not to insult and belittle people and so i think we attract people who um are interested in discussion that doesn't revolve around attacking and belittling people now to this point um i wanted to ask you about how your worldview changed um as you transitioned you're you're openly trans. And I was curious um, about what that experience was like for you, if you actually encountered any difficulty, um, and how you kind of handled that entire process. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've been very, very fortunate uh, throughout my transition. I have, um, I mean, obviously, it's been incredibly painful. I've lost some very important relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, I've experienced varying degrees of, um, you know, people not accepting me or people rejecting me or just being uncomfortable around me. But also, you know, I have a very, very supportive family. Um, I feel like by and large, my friends and the people whose spheres I've come into have been supportive and loving and very, very cool with my identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have not experienced, um, what I would describe as like a ton of really unfortunate, um, uh, reactions or circumstances, uh, from my, from my transition outside of a, like a couple of stories here and there that aren't even really worth going into. It's just, you know, run of the mill stuff that I think trans people experience from time to time. But in terms of my, you know, my POV changing, I think um, a couple of different ways. I think it, uh, as I went through my transition, I kind of went through this um, series of phases where it seemed like this impossible thing for that I would ever be able to do to, well, maybe I can do it, but it's going to ruin my life to, okay, I can do it. Life is going to suck, but I have to do it anyway because I don't see what other choice I have to, okay, this is maybe going to be okay to the point where I'm at now where I'm kind of like, you know what? I like who I am. Like, I'm not ashamed of it. I, you know, and that's been a really interesting journey. And as I've gone through that journey, I think I've become a kinder, more empathetic person. I think my friends would agree with that. And 
in fact have uh, commented on it. I think I've let go of a lot of my frustration and anger about life as a result of coming to love myself more. Um, and then just in terms of like more broad perspectives, I think you having the opportunity to go through life um, from both a male and later a female perspective um, and, of course, kind of in that uh, space in the middle where you're sort of um, still transitioning. I wouldn't describe it as like a non-binary space because I don't feel non-binary. And so I don't know what types of experiences someone who identifies as non-binary would have toward their body or with other people. But you're definitely not in a, in a phase where you're very clearly feeling definitively masculine or definitively feminine when you're going through your transition. So you get all of these opportunities to experience different aspects of life, especially if you choose to present stereotypically feminine much later in your transition, like I do most of the time, and you get interacted with in a very stereotypically feminine way by most people. So you know, you, you get more appreciation for both what men go through and what women go through and the blind spots they both have toward each other's experiences. Uh, and I feel like it just sort of raises your empathy for human beings in general, because you're more appreciative of both the strengths and the fears and the weaknesses that, um, you know, people get exposed to depending on their, their gender presentation and their, and their gender as they go through life. Was there anything surprising that you experienced while going through your transition? Anything you didn't expect? Mm, I mean, lots of little things. Like, that's, um, it's kind of difficult for me to, like, point to anything and be like, oh my gosh, this blew my mind, um, without sounding, like, really stereotypical. Like, um, I think it's, it, it's surprising in my experience how much, uh, some men and some women tend to other the opposite gender when in fact I really do agree that men and women have way more in common than they have, um, you know, different. Mm. But I also think that because so much of our lives in many cases are spent in sort of gender segregated spaces de facto, if not, um, you know, intentionally structured, I think you often get this like, I don't understand men. I don't understand women. And like right. the real, and like everyone says this, like, Oh, we're actually the same, but like, we actually are very similar men and women. There's some differences, but like, they're not as big as a lot of people think they are. If I'm exploring how often I really think about myself being a man, it's, it's pretty much non-existent. And I feel like for me, the way that genderedness is experienced is actually more so as as sexuality like i think of myself as a man in respect to the women mm -hmm. i'm interacting with and of course you know mm -hmm. as a cis male that is heterosexual like i i haven't explored much of this but um but just like you know day to day it's not it's not something that i'm manifesting in my mind that's the, it's interesting to hear you talk about it like that too. I wonder if some of the resistance that um, you get from guys toward trans people is sort of rooted in that, um, that sort of sexual consideration of women in the sense of like, oh, well, you know, uh, they have this perception of a trans person and I don't, I don't want to like sleep with that person. Therefore we, we're, we're not putting them in the, in the women category or whatever. 
Mm. Um, I don't know how true that is, but it's interesting to think about. Yeah, I think I think that could definitely be a component of it. And I also just think that um, when people think of themselves, so like when a heterosexual person thinks about a homosexual person, they think of like themselves doing homosexual acts and mm-hmm. then they react to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's what they're kind of projecting when they're in, when they're homophobic and they're interacting with homosexuals. And I think it's similar for transphobia that they imagine themselves going through this um, transition and then they have a feeling about it and then they project that. Do you think that's true? Like I'm just sharing my thoughts here. Yeah. um, I'm not, maybe, maybe I'm not quite sure. uh, Like they project their internalized feelings about, I think it's, I think it's more of an internal, um, disgust reaction about crossing mm-hmm. gender boundaries for for a lot of people you know because i mean like i think about how much um well and i think it's it's less so these days too like i'm consistently surprised by how not um not messed up about this stuff that the kids are compared to people in in my generation and mm-hmm. but i do think that a lot of the pushback is more about policing and enforcing gender norms and at times even like um ideological battles than it is necessarily about accepting someone for for who they are i i I feel like in person most people if you demonstrate um that you're a reasonable person and that you're um you know just trying to live your life and happy to talk Mm -hmm. to someone most people are not huge dicks actually and (laughs) We'll, we'll just be kind of okay. And I also think, you know, I think it's interesting what you said about not really considering your own gender from a from a cis-hetero perspective. I think what's interesting is that as I have gone further and further from my transition, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is over 10 years ago now, um, it's become kind of a non-issue for me too. Like, I don't, I don't wake up and like think about my gender every day. I just wake up and, you know do my thing and I'm happy with who I am and I, you know, feel good about who I am. And I don't particularly think too much about gender norms or my gender presentation to the degree that I did a decade ago, certainly. And I think a lot of that is a level of comfort in my gender and in who I am today Mm -hmm. that I didn't have 15 years ago when this was top of mind for me all the time because I was so uncomfortable. Do you think that in society there is an asymmetry? Um, so, for instance, bringing it back to sexuality, it's more okay in America for a girl to be bi than for like a, a guy to be bi. And um, it seems like there, to me, it seems like there's some kind of asymmetry about whether it's male to female transition or female to male transition. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that's like textbook. So people get all bent out of shape about male to female transitioners. And it's and, and a lot of the discussion around that is along the lines of like predation and protect and protecting the women that might come into contact with with trans women. But when it comes to trans men, people tend to like dismiss them completely. They don't even enter the conversation a lot of the time. And like, if you try to point out that trans men exist too, and bring them into the conversation, 
often that just gets brushed off or ignored. Like people just don't care. And like, it's like, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think it's not really based in logic. It's based in like emotions about it and, and morality, Mm. because a lot of the arguments that get made for why, you know, we want to put these restrictions on trans people and, or we don't want trans people in these spaces, but really what they mean is male to female trans people. And, and then if you bring up female to male trans people, it's just, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, I guess we'll apply the same rules to them too, maybe if they apply. And it's just an afterthought. The one place you do see a lot of hand-wringing and moral panic about female to male is with teens and and with kids. And that, in its own way, feels extremely sexist. It's about protecting our daughters from this looming trans threat. And the, the discussion around uh, male to female teens and kids is all about keeping them out of sports. Like right. it, you know, like it, it, it just falls across very normal gender lines for the anxieties that we express about our kids and our families. And I don't know, I don't know how useful or helpful it is. Yeah. It makes me wonder whether it has anything to do with um, just women in society being seen as like the second gender and so, you know, whether um, a woman, what they do, their actions just don't hit people as hard. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that's just the way it is in America that like men are um, elevated in people's minds. Um, I, I, I can't really explain it, but that's the only way that, um, that I can even begin to try. But I want to switch over and talk about the desert base because I had a couple questions about that, uh, which, you know. Just yeah. a, a very uh, smooth segue here. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, trans topics yeah. to desert base. <laughs> so, uh, strangest loop and maybe Gray uh, wanted to know about your short and long term goals with your desert base, and what are you most looking forward to, and being a desert base princess. <laughs> Yeah, a desert-based princess. Well, I certainly can call myself a princess, I guess, because it's my land. Nobody's right. going to argue with me. <laughs> the kingdom of liminal warmth. Mm-hmm. I actually just closed on it today. The escrow is a done deal. I've got the Congratulations. Deal. Thank you. I'm very excited to get out there with my contractors and start building it out a little. It's 40 acres yeah. in the desert. Um, short and long-term plans. Honestly, I long-term, I have no idea. I have a number of kind of half-baked concepts I'm kicking around. Um, I might do some kind of uh, Airbnb with a cabin type thing. Um, That's kind of an idea I'm playing with because there's a lot of room, right? Like, and it's a really fun, interesting space. And I think it could be really original. And I would love to have friends come and visit. And I would love to use the same space for, uh, you know, and kind of an Airbnb revenue stream when I'm not having friends visit. But like... Um, in the short term, uh, it's literally just going to be a place for me to park my RV that has full hookups. So I don't have to move my RV every two weeks or so, and I can just chill out and kind of build the land out. And I've got some plans for it. Like I want to set up a solar array and a greenhouse. Uh, I'm really excited to just kind of build a little self-sufficient base. I mean, it really is going to be a base for me. And then from there, you know, I'm in Arizona, so I can kind of bounce out to San Francisco. I can bounce out to San Diego. I've got family in Utah. I've got family in Washington. I've got friends in Seattle and Portland. So all of those spaces are between, you know, five and 15 hours from where I'm at, which is not bad 
considering and like i'm two hours from two major airports so you know i think it's going to be a great place to sort of launch adventures from once covid lifts and uh i can get out of dodge again so with this desert base is this at all connected to like an apocalypse situation or is that not entered your mind (laughs) no i mean like well of course it's of course it's entered my mind like how could it not with with recent news events and you know i'm Mm. not gonna say i'm not happy to have a space or that i'm going to have a space where i can just kind of retreat to and let any political instability blow over if we have (laughs) but um no like i'm not someone who like fantasizes about zombie apocalypse or like you know goes deep on the prepper stuff i have guns i you know i'm planning to keep food out there like a normal amount of food um but i'm not worried about society collapsing really i don't really think that if our if our society collapse it's not going to look like a situation where you're trading cigarettes and bullets for you know for food or roving gangs or going to come out and take your stuff i think it's going to look a lot more like we draw new political boundaries and we have some military skirmishes on those boundaries Mm. and being out in the desert you will probably have a much easier time finding ufos and i believe tyler cowan put the likeliness that intelligent aliens are like actively interacting with earth to be around five percent Mm. which is really, really high. <laughs> so I, uh, what, what do you think the likelihood is and what, what factors um, do you consider when, when thinking about UFOs and aliens and stuff? I am impressed that Tyler Cowan is so confident in that. Um, I, this is, this is going to sound funny given the rest of our conversation, but I don't actually believe that uh, extraterrestrials are visiting earth and mm. interacting with people. I don't, I don't believe in aliens. I don't believe in flying saucers. Um, what I do believe is that to the extent that phenomena like that occurs, it seems to me to be much more likely to be uh, something Wu adjacent related to hmm. visions or alternate realities or modes of reality we can't perceive that, you know, are kind of popping into our awareness spaces and uh, that, to me, seems much more plausible than sort of interstellar travel from planets we can't see and ships we can't detect with all of our, you know, telescopes and stuff making their way to Earth to probe us. Like, they're, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. And, like, actually, um, Owen Cyclops has this amazing thread where um, he compares extraterrestrials to biblical demons Mm. and also stories about fey and stuff and he makes a lot of great points about similarities in the lore around them so to the extent that you you know give credence to the reality of sort of beings like that i think extraterrestrials fit much more neatly into that space than they do into the reality of interstellar space travel and also seem like they would have interests more aligned with the types of activities that are reported for beings like that I'm going to give you a little bit of my thoughts on this. The first mm-hmm. one is that when you when you look at like the the wealth of information about this stuff, then it's it gets to the point where people are like protesting too much. You're like, okay, you're just trying to look for some kind of 
explanation when you have people that are in the military, et cetera, saying like, whoa, there, I've never seen anything like this. This is exactly what's happening. This is very difficult to explain, mm-hmm. et cetera. And, and the way I think, like the reason that I think 5% is, is a decent number here is that if you just think about like a galactic civilization, um, it makes sense for them to send drones everywhere. Now, I'm not saying they're, they're like little gray men that are probing people, but I'm saying that it makes sense if you're a galactic civilization, if you're taking... Um, you know, all the elements around various suns and using AI to send machines all over the universe for whatever reason, it just makes sense that like you're everywhere. And now what's the chance that there's, you know, this, this alien form that's everywhere. It's, it's some number, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's 1% or 5%, but we do interact with these strange objects that are difficult to explain. And I, I just feel like um, that there's more possibility than people really give it credit for. To be clear, like I believe that these things happen and I believe that we have interactions with these entities. I just don't believe that they're from some far-flung galactic civilization like like you're describing. Like I feel like right. we'd have more evidence of them traveling to our planet or speeding out to other planets, I feel like. you know, It, it just seems weird that we would see nothing like no evidence of them outside of our immediate soul outside of our immediate planet boundaries even and then like all of this activity within the boundaries of of earth you know like how where are they coming from like if they're really that common if they're really that enmeshed in everything how are they getting here like why don't we detect that i I don't know like it just it seems very implausible to me that that would be the origin of these beings and this technology well, we have a hard time detecting like asteroids, right? Like we could possibly be hit by a massive asteroid that we don't even see coming. That's how I kind of think of this type of thing. Like we don't have these massive metal detectors in space or anything where where we see everything going on up there. But we have people no? whose whole like hobby is searching for this stuff, like, yeah. you know, aggressively against the night sky, like looking at sections of it and like... I, I just feel like we would turn up more evidence outside of the immediate boundaries of our planet if they were indeed from outside of our planet. Yeah, I understand that. I just figure that if it's this advanced technology, then if they don't want to be seen, don't have to work too hard in order not to be seen. Of course, then the question is like, then why are we encountering any of this stuff at right. all? Like, like they, they only want to be seen once they enter the atmosphere. I, I don't know. Like I'm, like, I'm not saying you're wrong. I think it's unknowable in the same way that any of this stuff is unknowable. So like call them demons, call them extraterrestrials. We've got no freaking clue. The yeah. question is, you know, as always, what are they doing? What are the actual impacts of our interactions with them? And that's a super fascinating question, regardless of their origin. Now, this question, I was just really curious because you have um, a long history in games. Like you're making a game, uh, you're a games journalist. You you clearly spend a lot of time playing and thinking about games. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to know what what are your top three video games of all time? Of all time? Wow. Of all time. Yeah. Um, that's a tough question to answer because I've played a lot of games. Yeah. Um, 
And I think my answer would be different depending on whether I'm answering for myself or whether I'm evaluating like what I think are objectively the best games. But I will Mm -hmm. probably tell you that uh, in just my life and my experience, like my three favorites have Mm -hmm. probably been um, Fallout 1 and 2, which I'll kind of lump together into a single game because I, you know, it was my first exposure to some very adult concepts in a game. And just the openness of the world and the creativity and the complexity of the game, uh, of this open world game, I think was fascinating. Um, And the setting is so unique and original. Um, I really enjoyed playing those games when I was a teenager. I still go back and play them periodically. So that's definitely in my top three. Um, Another game that I've probably sunk thousands of hours into would be uh, The Elder Scrolls Morrowind. Um, Mm -hmm. That was you know, that was the last Elder Scrolls that didn't have voice chat, but, um, you know, like they didn't have like full voice recorded characters. Yeah. And so it opened up all these opportunities for modding the game to a level that like we just can't replicate in, in modern games because of the requirements around having them voice acted. And the level of like writing and uh, detail that can be put into it by a single creator is so incredible and it spawns enormous ecosystem of mods that you know just extended the the life of the of the game for so many years you can play morrowind and have it look almost as good as modern games right now thanks to like amazing modding community and like such an original setting again such a cool open world as as you can see i'm kind of a big fan of 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 open world um and then I, I think that the last one would just have to be World of Warcraft. Um, I, I think it'd be very hard for me to make a list and not put that game on there, given how much of my life it's uh, it's, it's played a role in. I mean, even now we're we're playing on this WoW Classic server with our with our Twitter guild. You know, you're in it, yeah. and uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. I, anyone who's listening is welcome to come play with us too. By the way, it's not too late. We've got people at all levels. You guys should come play. It's super fun. But. For um, sure. The, you know, it's just this amazing, um, it was basically the first MMO that fixed all of the annoying, frustrating, uh, like really time sinky grindy problems with the MMOs that had come before it and blew the lid off the market. And there hasn't been a game that's had the level of success that WoW has had and continues yeah. to have since then. And it's just a really impressive achievement and it's a really great game. Yeah, I I played it way back in in vanilla. What happened was I bought it for my brother for Christmas, and then I installed it, and then I like never let him play. I just I just Classic took it. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, I I bought him a Christmas gift that that I used, but um, but yeah, I think a lot about what was it like? It was Christmas Day. I'm with my family, and I'm sitting there, you know doing quests in this game and i like couldn't stop there's Mm. something just strangely addictive about that game and uh, how would you like you you said that it it fixes a lot of the problems that the other mmos had but a lot of it i think was accessibility like Mm -hmm. it was so easy to get into um like they make starting the game so smooth and you you have the video in the beginning where we're like they're introducing um where you, the the starting area and um you have the quests that are lit up and the movement is very simple you know you don't have to like navigate through complicated rooms or anything 
Yeah, so Blizzard is a great game design company, or at least they were. I haven't played their, their latest stuff as much. But mm-hmm. um, I think one of the things that they did, several of the things that they did really, really well with WoW were that um, they immediately do a good job of making you feel heroic. Like, I remember when I first logged mm. into to World of Warcraft and started playing it for the first time back in Classic, um, I was coming off games like City of Heroes and, and EverQuest, where the normal, uh, you know, pattern of events would be that you would go out, you're like this newbie with a rusty sword, and you have to kill 10 rats, and then you get to kill a bunch of beetles, and then you get to kill <laughs> maybe a wolf, but the wolf kicks your ass at first. <laughs> and like, you know, it, you just don't feel very heroic. You feel like everything can and will kill you. And then all of a sudden, WoW comes in, and it's like, okay you're a priest, you're a squishy caster priest, but you get to run into this cave full of deadly demon spiders and you're going to come out okay and you're going to be able to go through it by yourself and you're going to get this amazing flashy quest reward. And the other thing WoW did really well is it has these really strong feedback loops. Like when you come and complete a quest, there's a big flashy golden whoosh and that happens when you get a level up too and that's very like aesthetically satisfying. This is something that Chris Natsume, who was the lead producer on Far Cry, he was my mentor back when uh, I worked for him in college a little bit oh, as cool. a company. And he was, I remember him teaching me about casual games and explaining that this like, you know, this is like common knowledge now for game designers, but it was a new experience for me. And this like visual, aesthetically pleasing, um, even you, you might describe it almost as tactile. It's like simulated, you mm-hmm. know, tactile, but uh, it just feels good. And so you come back, you get the whoosh, you get your weapon. The weapon yeah. actually results in an upgrade a lot of the time that makes your character feel stronger. And then the decline in power is so slow that you're accustomed to it so that the next jump, again, makes you feel super heroic. And, like, they just do a really good job of, like, keeping you rolling through that same feedback loop up and, like, even past when you hit 60 and you're just farming high-level instances. Yeah, they kind of make sure, and I think they actually got a little bit better at this over time, but they kind of make sure that you are getting a reward each level up like they have a lot of a lot of small wins and a lot of big wins and one of the one of the things that these games that are really effective at doing this um give you with these small wins is like in final fantasy when you win a battle you you get the battle music and the loot and everything and then Mm -hmm. in pokemon uh you get that evolution animation it's like drugs and (laughs) it's just like holy cow it's so funny yeah, it's the same thing. You're you're handing in these quests, and it's it's about just like lining up the wins in such a way that they they game your dopamine mm-hmm. in in a way yeah. that's really smooth. And I think that's if you can get started and then ramp that without losing someone for years, it's just masterful. It's funny because I feel like lining quests up in your quest log feels a lot like if you were to make a to-do list on a pad of paper and then methodically mm-hmm. check things off one by one. Right. And then when you level up as a result of it, it feels like, you know, I don't know, like like a parent figure coming in and patting you on the head and being like, good job for completing all your chores. Like, that's the emotional experience, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of like at work, um, like I... I get, after I work a certain number of hours, I get a a pay bump, right? Which is, it's like, it's nice, but it's not exponential, Mm -hmm. right? In these games, everything is exponential. 
Yeah. So that maintains the um, it's it's kind of like you don't get stuck on the wage curve mm-hmm. because you're getting better faster and faster and faster. But I, I think Warcraft is absolutely masterful and uh, they did a really good job into Wrath of the Lich King. I'm going to ask you one last question from Darbra Dawn. She wanted to ask uh, about starting writing and freelancing and the benefits of self-publishing. Uh, you have a bunch of books on Amazon and I was wondering like, how hard was it for you to start doing that? Did anybody guide you through the process? Um, how profitable is it? Uh, how much work is it to maintain? What should people be thinking about if they're interested in getting in self-publishing? That's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I could probably talk for an hour just on, on this topic alone. So yeah. uh, I'll kind of give you the, the highlights. Um, I think that the number one piece of advice that I would give to people if they're listening and interested in this is go read the long form essays I've already written on this because they're just full of answers to many of the questions that you probably have about this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Cliff's Notes version of this is that it nobody really guided me through it. And the thing with um, entrepreneurship in general is that you do just kind of have to learn it on your own and sort truth from fiction and figure out what works for you because what works for someone else may not work for you. You may find your own thing that works for you better and that's just how it plays out for you or it may not work for you at all. Um, in terms of like... Eventually, I did run into people who gave me tips and I you know, got invited to a forum that made things easier. And you, you kind of find those people as you go along and learn who to listen to and who to talk to. There's a lot of bad information out there. Um, and really, the only way to learn is to do it. In terms of profitability, uh, I spent a year and three months working on my first novel, uh, which is fast for a, a lot of writers. Um, working on their on their first novel i published it with after a lot of effort like promoting it in the in the blogosphere and on twitter and uh that was my my fantasy novel it to this day has made about maybe a thousand dollars maybe eleven hundred dollars and i spent four thousand dollars converting it to an audiobook uh in the hope that that would produce some revenue so you know that itself was a big lesson about how to make more careful bets in in the publishing industry i right so you know I, I took a big loss on that and i actually didn't come back to it for six months to a year and then i pivoted into a different category of, of of writing so it can be risky like you need to have a lot of time to experiment you need to be willing to go play in some different spaces and see what works you need to have a lot of books out there uh you know a lot of times writers don't even start seeing appreciable money until they've got seven books out. Um, And you have a lot more than seven. I've got, yeah, like between all my pen names, I have well over a hundred. And and a lot of that is, is ghost writers now too. You know, I don't really do a ton of my own writing anymore. Um, I I can, but I tend to save that for when I really get in the mood for it. And then I'll, I'll put a book out, but Right. I thought that was really smart. It's, it was kind of, uh, remind me of like how Tim Ferriss has these books where he aggregates, um, answers to questions from a bunch of people he knows, mm-hmm. which, which is a really interesting format. Um, but I was wondering how did you 
get all these people on board to, you know, do this reading, do this writing, send it to you and have you package these books. It seems like a really efficient method for you to pump out books. But I feel like, how, how do you make that sale? Well, it took me a long time to build the team I have right now. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I'm talking here more about my actual publishing business. The Alden Marshall books that you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I don't really yeah. make a ton of money off those at all. I just have them up so they can fund my uh, my occult research. Like the, Basically, those pay for the the note summaries that I'm doing on them so that I can, you know, gather all that information and look into it myself because I'm interested in it. So I don't really put that as like part of the publishing business that barely, I, I don't even really think that pays for itself um, right, right now. But um, getting people on board, I just uh, used a contractor site called Upwork. And I actually have a little bit of a beef with Upwork right now because um I'm not thrilled with their policy around adult content because, you know, a lot of the books that I write are uh, er erotic romance. I started in erotica, I moved to um, erotic romance, and now I have a mix of romance and erotic romance in my books. But um, they have inconsistently enforced policies around what you can use their site for. So I wasn't even using their site for ghostwriting services. I was using their site for... Um, uh, I mean, I, I had at times used their site for ghostwriting services, but what got me tagged and what got us into a fight was I was having a translator translate some of my books into a foreign language. Mm -hmm. And they like it, it's dumb. They have like really they're they are the marketplace for erotica and erotic writing on the internet. And they just sort of come down inconsistently on different examples of it. Um, mm -hmm. and like you basically just get unlucky, get tagged and they'll, and they'll ban your account and kick you off. Wow. And if you if you're very conciliatory and you come back and you agree to type out word for word the like written statement on your knees and beg them to reinstate your account. <laughs> seriously, like they 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 make you type a statement word for word that's like, I am a bad person. I violated your policies. I acknowledge it. I will not do it again. <laughs> and like when I tried to say like, I don't agree with your policies, I'll type your statement, but I'm typing it under duress. Like they right. basically wouldn't accept it and wouldn't reinstate my account that had like active payments to contractors that were waiting to get paid for work they had done un until I did that. And like, I was like, fuck you guys. So like the second time it, the second time it happened, I was ready. And I just, that time I was just like, okay, you know what? We're done. And I moved all of my contractors off of their site and you know, I'm not going to work with them anymore, but that's how you do it. That's a good site to start with, I guess, if you're not, you know, doing romance and erotic writing. And, uh, there, but you can also use Fiverr. There's, you, can, you can recruit on Reddit forums. You can reach out directly on LinkedIn. There's lots of ways to go acquire contractors in today's day and age. I just think it's funny imagining you uh, handing in this letter and then being like, yeah, I'm, I'm not getting the, the feeling and the emotion <laughs> through I was, this. I don't, I don't think you're being sincere. I was about so your... mad, Nick. I was so <laughs> mad. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, sorry. I don't know if I'm supposed to swear on this or not, but like, nah, it's, it's um, but um, I, I was like, you guys have like postings for people who are volunteering to write very upsetting graphic erotica uh, live on your site right now and you know authors offering to sell it and you're telling me I can't have translators translate my pretty tame erotic romance 
because I happened to get tagged and you guys happened to look at my account. But you continue to make money off this stuff every day and like massive inconvenience. Like I wouldn't care if they applied it consistently. They don't. This isn't this isn't just a them problem. This is a problem throughout the entire industry for uh, right. romance and, and erotic romance. There are no standards. They're inconsistently applied. It's basically what the individual operator looks at and decides when they look at your account. And there is no appeal process. You you have no power when you're in this situation, which right. is something I talk about sometimes and why people should avoid getting involved with platforms in the first place. Yeah, and you see this happen all the time on YouTube and other um, areas of, of content creation where, um, you know, there, there might not even be anything wrong and somebody's flagging somebody else. And the system just right now is... It's like you said, it's just not very efficient. But uh, but thanks for coming on, Lim. I had a lot of fun and uh, yeah. I learned a lot. I appreciated it. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. It was really, really fun. I had a really great time talking to Lim. To read about what Lim is doing, check out her website on liminalwarmth.com. For more episodes of this show, check out becomingcreature.substack.com. If you like this episode, please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you to Frank IV and Murphy Chicken for the music. Thank you to Four Shaper for the show art. And I will see you next time.